Good morning. It is a delight to be together again on this Sunday morning. And today is not yet Pentecost, but next Sunday here at LEMC, I'm assuming Joe is going to continue our worship, our sermon series on Come and See with a focus on revival. And that will be the concluding sermon on this whole series of sermons on Come and See. We've been continuing this sermon series. And the focus has been on what God is doing, and it's going to conclude next Sunday morning with the story of Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit filled the disciples with power, gave them the power to preach the good news, and the church came into existence and had a big baptism service and so on. But this morning, I want to focus on what happened on that Pentecost morning just before Peter stood up to preach. And those of you who know your Bibles will know exactly what scripture passage I have in mind. But before I do that, I want to just draw attention to life as it is lived today. That event in Acts chapter 2 is a, an event that defies logic. I mean, how is that possible? There's no scientific way to explain it. You can't explain it. It's impossible. But there are things in life in our time too. And if you, I know you can go to the Bible and read many stories that don't make sense or defy logic and say, well, that's a God thing. It's a God thing. And of course it is. But that happens even in our time. Sometimes things happen that you just have no idea how is it possible. And you conclude saying, you know what? Must be God. I came across a story this last week that is like that. Happened back in the mid-1700s, late 1700s. A very, very strange story. I want to use that story as a launch point into our sermon. But a man named Timothy Dexter. I checked the story out, making sure it wasn't false, or was just somebody dreamed it up, and it checks out. And this man, Timothy Dexter, was deemed to be the luckiest man alive. And to this day, people are puzzled at what happened. He was a prolific businessman at the dawn of the United States one of the first people in the U.S. history to rise from the lower class to the upper class. His business success, however, was entirely a stroke of luck. Few things that he succeeded in can be attributed to his intelligence, because he didn't have it, or business prowess, because it just wasn't there. He made most of his fortune off tips from his contemporaries who tried to ruin him. But Timothy Dexter, none the wiser, took these tips of advice from fellow people in his community, and somehow got lucky every time. He was described as eclectic, lucky, and illiterate. He actually wrote a book, terrible book. I checked it out. It's online. You can read it for free. Terrible book. It was a bestseller, apparently. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. He's born in the town of Malden, Massachusetts. At age eight years of age, he dropped out of school. At age 22, he married a 32-year-old widow, Elizabeth Frothingham, who had inherited her husband's wealth estate. She was quite wealthy. And that, we could say, that's nothing that big yet, but during the Revolutionary War in the U.S., they had this, what's called, continental currency. Well, it was basically worthless. Everyone knew it. And for no apparent reason, Mr. Dexter bought this currency wherever he could find it, fractions of a penny to the, to the note, and... And he amassed thousands of these worthless notes. In an unforeseen stroke of luck, 
after the US, the U.S. became in a country, the decision was made by the government to buy those currency notes back. And he, 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 he sold them, made a fortune off that. And who could have thought, who could have known, right, that that useless paper money would be worth so much? Well, there was, there was other things that happened in his life. One of them was that the people in his community wanted him to go bankrupt. So they advised him to, um, to buy bed warmers, these metal containers with a handle on it and a lid on it. You put embers in there to warm up your bed in the evening in a cold night. So they told him to buy those and sell them to the uh, Car- markets in the Caribbean. He took their advice, bought a whole bunch of those, shipped them off to the West Indies, because that's a very foolish thing to do. Nobody uses them down there. But his wise um, ship captain, he uh, led the locals to believe that they were molasses scoopers. He sold out and made a fortune on that. And then they tried to tell him that it would be a good idea for him to buy coal and sell it to Newcastle. Well, that was just plain foolish because there's an idiom they used back then. The idiom went like this carry coals to Newcastle. If you're doing something that totally didn't make any sense, it was a useless activity, it was called carrying coals to Newcastle. Well, he bought coal, shipped it to Newcastle. It just so happened at that very time he sold it, he shipped it there. It was a coal strike in Britain. He sold the coal at a good profit. And this went on in a number of different ways. To everyone's surprise, everything paid off and everything that tried to ruin him made him more prosperous. He didn't become wealthy because he was smart, because every one of his deals from a financial standpoint was absolutely bad. But it worked. Unfortunately, however, it got to his head. There's a lot of things he did that were foolish. One thing he tried to do was write a book, as I said before, and the title of the book is called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. Unfortunately, it's utterly incoherent, and you can read it online, as I said, it has terrible grammar, tons of, there's just the spelling makes no sense, and there's not a single punctuation mark in the part that he wrote, nothing. People didn't like it, it sold for, not because it was good, because it was bad, and then in later editions he put a page in the back, and it's true, he put a page in the back full of punctuation marks, you salt and pepper as you like, he said. A weird, strange story. Well, why would I mention something like this to start off a sermon? I'm of the belief, and I firmly believe this, God has ordained and planned how he's going to run this world. And sometimes there's things that we can, at the end of the day, just say, you know what? God did it. That's it. And I want to say to us this morning, before we go into the book of Acts, the Church of Jesus Christ is one such organization. It makes no sense from a worldly perspective. It shouldn't exist. It's foolish. It has no value in terms of earthly value. It's about dying to self. Well, that's not popular. Giving yourself for the benefit of the other. Where's that valuable? By worldly standards, the church should have not even started. If it had started, it should have fizzled right out of the, right out the gate. It should never have flourished. It makes no sense from a human perspective. And think of it, the story of the church, who in the right mind would follow it? And anyone who is a serious student of history and studies how the church of Jesus Christ started has to admit its beginning and its work, its existence, it defies all logic, all reason. Let's back up a bit. When Jesus began his ministry, it was not long until the religious leaders, the elite in Judea, Jerusalem more specifically, realized they had a potential problem on their hands. 
And from a socially practical standpoint of view, the best thing for them was get rid of Jesus. There's actual gospel writings that conspired how to get rid of Jesus. Oh, the Jews had their own problems, political and social and so on. Jesus wasn't helping. He was adding. <clears throat> and they just figured if they could get rid of Jesus, things would be better. At least they would not stand to lose so much from trouble with the Romans, their own power and influence and so on. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to safeguard and keep and protect what they had. Only made sense. If Jesus went, things would be good. <clears throat> so they decided to kill him. That was the best solution. Crucify him. It was not good enough just to kill this Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. If they just killed him with a sword, he could be made out to be a martyr. And it's not without reason when they stood and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. It was not without reason they said crucify him because to crucify someone was the most disgusting, cursed death that anybody could die. And it was very strategic. Galatians chapter 3.13, let's read that. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let's go to the next one, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. <clears throat> and if a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, he's put to death, you hang him on a tree, his body shall not be remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hangman's cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. See, the Jewish Pharisees, they just wanted Jesus dead, but not just dead, cursed dead. Good dead, like really dead. Socially, politically, religiously, everything. Get rid of him once and for all. If Jesus is gone, that'll work. That would seal the case. Nothing good would come out of that ever. He couldn't even be revered as a martyr. But then shortly, a few days after he was crucified, the disciples said, he's risen. And then the Jewish leaders, they tried to hush the story. Well, Jesus was reported to be alive. Jewish leaders tried to cover it up. But what happened was something no one could have ever believed possible. And it's this. As it turned out, the very worst of the worst things that they'd been able to do to Jesus, crucify him, that story, the crucifixion and resurrection, that became the catapult, the launch point from which the church bursted onto the stage of history. That story was the badge, the banner under which this new movement would rise, the Christian church. This event came onto the world stage with such power and glory, and it started a flame of defiance of death and ignited a living hope that has to this day lived on and doesn't die, and it burns on today. From a human point, standpoint, the contrast couldn't be greater. The surest thing that the leaders in Jerusalem thought they had conjured up, get rid of Jesus in a very unique strategic way, that turned into an event, took on a life of its own, they had no idea, and couldn't stop it. And on Pentecost, God broke in on humanity and the power of His Spirit. Initially, the flashpoint was Jerusalem, but it expanded into the country, into Samaria, Judea, the ends of the Roman Empire. And then when the Apostle Paul was chosen by Christ to become his follower, his servant, he became a missionary, planted many churches, and one of the churches, Church of Corinth, was struggling. It was a messy church. It had divisions and quarrelings and fights and on, on and on and on. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, these words, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He writes again in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, to 4, 1, 1 and 2. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, meaning the Corinthians, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It disarmed the people. 
They have no way of dealing with it. The most humiliating, disgusting, repulsive, shameful, violent way to die, that happened to Jesus. That was the launch point from which Paul spread his message. He came with the cross, and in the cross and Christ's resurrection, that's where the power was. So when the followers of Jesus were together in Jerusalem on that Pentecost day, they could not have known how that day would unfold or the impact that would have on the world stage. We're not told, but we can assume. On that Pentecost morning, these people had no clue, no idea what would unfold. They'd been told, wait in Jerusalem till you'll be filled with power from, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you'll be filled with power from on high, you'll be my witnesses. That's what they'd been told. The mechanics of it, how it would unfold, they had no clue. Didn't matter. Let's begin reading Acts chapter 2, starting verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's stop there. This was a heavenly manifestation of power, such as had never happened before. It's a very descriptive passage here. The writer to Acts simply says, they were all together, this community, fellowship. Suddenly, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. doesn't say there was a rushing wind, just a sound of a rushing wind. Physical power was present. It's audible. There were tongues of fire, appeared as tongues of fire, pictures of light, again visible, vi- visible evidence rested on each of them. A physical manifestation of power on God on these people. And they began to talk in other languages, or we can say languages as the Holy Spirit gave them power to do so. This was an event completely, totally outside of the control of any one of them. No one knew this would happen. This is not something that was simply fabricated and created and dreamed up. They were not expecting this. This was the day of Pentecost. It had been 50 days since Jesus had been killed. I do want to say that I do believe at this point the Pharisees had perhaps maybe settled down a bit, become somewhat confident, maybe a bit relaxed, even the Jesus problem is gone. It's over. Nothing more is going to come out of this troublesome Nazarene rabbi who came and taught the masses. It's, it, that's history. Little did they know that in Jerusalem, right under their noses, there was going to rise a movement that was going to spread through the world like wildfire, and in a few more decades, their beloved Jerusalem, more specifically their treasured temple, would be destroyed. It would go right upside down. A bit like the people trying to ruin Timothy Dexter. What they thought they had done to Jesus, get rid of him, had actually served as the stepping stone into the existence of the church. Instead of them securing for themselves a way to preserve their beloved religion and their legalistic ways, they lost everything. And the church gained it all. Their selfish, evil attitude drove them to get rid of Jesus. They didn't know God was using that to turn use as the springboard that would propel the church forward. From God's side, everything was unfolding exactly according to plan. And this matter of speaking tongues was not a random coincidence. It was planned by God. The apostles were small in number, true, at that point in time. 
but they were speaking in different languages to people from a variety of places. Let's read on. That's quite interesting. Verse 5 and on, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is that we hear each of us in his own how is that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Let's keep reading verse 10. Fergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Sixteen different nationalities are mentioned here. Different groups of Jews even. It's a huge variety. They're surprised, bewildered, it says. They don't know what's going on. Can't explain it. Well, people have argued and tried to explain this away, and they tried then too. They said, well, they're just drunk. But this idea of people hearing them in their own native language is some debate and argue that, um, well, were they actually speaking different languages or on and on? I just come back and say, listen, it's a miracle. The idea was the apostles were preaching, and everybody heard what was being said in their own language. God was doing a great thing, a miracle. It was surprising. If there's one thing that we as people must get through our minds is this. We cannot limit God. He's not defined by our perceptions. He's not limited to what we can figure out. This event was a special event where God stepped onto the stage of time with His Spirit, and the Holy Spirit filled these people to bring into existence the body of Christ, namely the church. And if you read further, and Joe is going to speak on this next Sunday, I presume, we'll see what the purpose behind this was. God wanted His church, the body of Jesus, to come into existence. And later in the chapter, we find there were 3,000 who were baptized and joined that day. Not to talk, make any mention of those who did not join. So the number of people present was at least 3,000 in the crowd, most likely more. I do wonder, though, what the religious leaders must have thought when they got wind of this. Perhaps they were a little bit like the people, the businessmen who were trying to advise this Timothy Dexter. Uh-oh, this backfired, had the opposite effect. And as it says, there were some who mocked and tried to discredit them, and oh, they're just, they're just drunk. Peter says, nope, it's too early to be drunk. Nobody's intoxicated here. This is a different manifestation than drunk, drunkenness. It's not that. This event was a powerful intervention from God on humanity. The apostles had no idea of what the magnitude of this event would, event would be. They had no idea of how powerful this really was. They were just going with the flow. This, is, this torrent, this tide, this flow of events was happening. They were in on it. It's a glorious day for the disciples. And they finally understood for real what it had been that Jesus had been trying to teach them about them being His witnesses, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, being filled with power. But even now, even here, if you read on in the book of Acts, not everything was 100% clear. And in fact, they had some learning to do and some growing to do, but they were filled with the Spirit, they had the power of the Spirit, and they would and did grow. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the book of Acts. I encourage you to read it. But what we must know and believe 
is this, God cannot and God will not be stopped. Everyone who tries to interfere, intervene with God is messing with danger. You read the story of the Apostle Paul. Before he became a believer, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Jesus did say to him, it's hard for you to kick against the bricks. That's how Paul shares his vision with some of the people in the book of Acts. We live in a world today where the culture is trying to distract the church, to engage the church in worldly ways, to become involved in all kinds of things that draw the church away from Christ, to minimize the influence of the Spirit in the church. And it's surprising in how many places the church is not awake to it, kind of asleep to it. The church is allowing itself to be drawn away in many ways. What is often portrayed as progress or freedom is nothing more than compromise. A temptation to let the world have its way with the church. Let's be clear. The world would love to see the church fall and disappear. And it's not new, but God has promised He will never allow that to happen. His church in this world will be here until He comes and takes it home. And that day is coming. He will sustain His church. He will protect His church. He will lead His church, and His church will not fail. Oh, yes, there's individuals who fail, small groups who fail, but His body, will, will, He will sustain it. And no matter, how, no matter how many people are trying to ruin the church or destroy the church, like Dexter's rivals tried, what God has ordained will stay. He will sustain the church. Oh, He'll allow it to suffer, not because He doesn't love the church, but because He loves His church. Oh, sometimes the church messes up even. God has ways of disciplining His church. When his children stray, there are times when God allows them to experience the fruits of their actions. The church can be disciplined and is disciplined sometimes. But we must hold faithfully to the Word of God. And it, and it won't always make sense from, uh, from our perspective. Lord, why? We can't see this. Why? Well, he has his ways. And sometimes the culture looks so much more attractive and so much more appealing. Well, the culture is temporary. The church is eternal. The way of the cross is the way to God. It's a life of self-denial, of repentance, of surrender to Jesus, and that draws us to Him. God can work glory for Himself even when things look totally unreasonable and difficult and doesn't make sense, it's not logical. We're called to be faithful. God's Word is sure. We must hold on. We must use God's Word as our guide to live by. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 writes these words. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word encourages, lifts, comforts, strengthens, affirms, empowers, rebukes, convicts, and disciplines us. It's the way it should be. Paul wrote again to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, he says, For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. Talk is cheap. Anybody can talk. What really makes a difference is the light and the walk. Our calling is to glorify Jesus. God made that possible when He sent His Spirit at Pentecost. And it's only through that that we can be where God wants us to be. We cannot make or create our own plan of salvation. We cannot map our own road to heaven. 
We can't build our own foundation in which to build a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't work. God sent Jesus in a power that was unstoppable to take our place on the cross, to die for our sins. Then God, in an unstoppable way, brought Jesus out of the tomb alive. And then, in an unstoppable way, God sent the Holy Spirit to start His church. And that same power still sustains His church, which we're part of. It's important that we stay in the Word. We do not leave. We do not stray. Let me read again. Hebrews. I want to read this one. Read Hebrews 1 verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Matthew talks about Jesus having all power and all authority. We're dealing with an eternal being, an eternal God who has the universe under His control completely. We simply cannot grasp it. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of His nature. He paid for our sins, and He indwells us with His Spirit. When the early church spread and started expanding, there came a time when the believers were simply called little Christs, Christians. I was talking this last week with one of our people and asked, how would we feel if Jesus would come in person and say, by the way, Jake, I want you to wear my name on your back or on your, on your shirt. I want you to wear my name. How would we feel if Jesus says, okay, I want you to carry my name. I want you to wear my name. Oh, but I, I'm not that good. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm embarrassed. Like, I, I fall too many times, right? Well, I'm, maybe we'd, we would say that. Our work is to bring glory to God by living out the goodness of Jesus Christ. And yes, church looks foolish. It doesn't make sense if you sacrifice and give and self-deny and all those things. The world says, look out for yourself. But He's promised to be with us. I want to close with the words of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes these words. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to indwell your people through the Holy Spirit. Nothing can stop your spirit. And your spirit lives in your children. Help us to understand that and to find rest and comfort in that. You came to die for our sins, to rise from the dead. Then you came to indwell us with your spirit. You're now at the Father's right hand, interceding for us on our behalf. We pray for your power in our lives to continue to guide us, for us to live out your calling on our lives. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen.